All right, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse one. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And the leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She had broken open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Verse four, some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such an expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the whole world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And then in verse 10, kind of a change of scenery here. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, he went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted when they heard why he had come and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is alive. It's powerful. We know, Lord, that your word still speaks today. And so I just ask that in these next few moments this morning, as we kind of center ourselves around this text, around your living word, that you would speak to us in a powerful way, convict our hearts, challenge us as we look at what it truly looks like to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to search our hearts, to see if our hearts are in alignment with your hearts. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you. Help me to declare your word with simplicity, with boldness. And God, I pray this morning that you would help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna move through uh, this text quickly today in Mark chapter 14. Let me just kind of paint the scene for you, kind of paint the picture uh, of what's really happening now at this point in time in ministry, especially in relationship to Mark 14. The intensity level in our narrative this morning is starting to reach really an all-time high in Mark's gospel. We've been working up to what can be defined as the climactic moment of really any of the gospels, and that is the, the cross of Jesus Christ and eventually his resurrection and so the intensity level, the emotions and everything, are they're just starting to, to really develop and stir at a level they'd never been at before. We're nearing that climactic point. We're nearing the moment that Jesus is going to go to the cross. And in these final moments, in these final hours, the stage now is really being set for what I would define as the most crucial season in all of history, and it is the moment that Christ was crucified and eventually he was raised three days later. 
And so we're, we're, we're beginning to sense this intensity and this, this rise of emotions as we read the text. And I would encourage you that we're kind of breaking it up on your own. Go back and, and begin in chapter 13, 14, and 15. Really go back to chapter 11 when really the Passion Week begins, when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem on a donkey. And I would encourage you to read that in one sitting and you will begin to feel and see and sense the, the intensity rising as Jesus gets closer and closer closer to the cross. We know it gets really intense when he gets into the garden and he starts praying and he says, Father, if there is any other way for your will to be done, so let it be. But he submits himself to the will of the Father. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus is praying so intently in the garden that he's beginning to sweat drops of blood. So, so emotionally, even physically and spiritually, the intensity of what's happening in the gospel is starting to reach an all-time high. Now, I want you to also notice, because this comes into play as well, the timing of everything that is happening. Everything that is occurring here in Mark, it really Mark 11 through the end of his gospel is, is centered around one of the greatest festivals and feasts in Jewish history, and that is the Passover celebration. Now, the Passover celebration is, is a commemoration of when Israel was liberated or set free from Egyptian bondage. It goes all the way back to Exodus when Moses comes back to Egypt and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And after a few times going before Pharaoh in 10 plagues, eventually Israel is liberated. They are set free. They are allowed to leave Egypt and go toward the land of promise. And it is out of that event that the Passover, the final plague where, where they are instructed to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, and then the angel of death will pass over any household or home that has that blood on it. That's where the Passover celebration really begins. And so every single year, the Jews will gather together to celebrate this, this, this feast, this Passover celebration to commemorate their freedom, their liberation from Egyptian bondage. But now when we get even into the New Testament, there is this expectation that a Messiah is coming and they're looking for this Messiah. So every single time that they gather to celebrate the Passover, Passover they remember Moses who comes in to rescue the Israelite people, and it certainly brings to mind thoughts and emotions of maybe this year, maybe this will be the year that we celebrate the Passover, that, that our Messiah will certainly come and rescue us from the physical bondage that they are presently experiencing. So for the Jewish people, this expectation of a Messiah is at an all-time high. This celebration every single year when the Passover was celebrated, they, people from all over would travel. They would come to Jerusalem and they would fill the streets and even outside the city. I mean, this city that would probably have typically 65,000 people now during the Passover celebration will, will see anywhere from 85 to 330,000 people that will flood the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover. Passover. 
So you can imagine the, the intensity and the chaos and, and the emotions that are surrounding this festival. And, and, and to really help paint the picture, many of us have probably been to the state fair before. And, and so that's kind of the, the element, obviously not on the same playing field, but, but think about the, the state fair and all of the smells and the, and the feels that we get when we come together for the state fair, the food we look forward to and, and, and the good smells and maybe the not so good smells. And, and when we get gather together for that, that celebration of the state fair every year where there is this intensity. We look forward to it and we're excited and, and people uh, come from all over to experience that. Well, that's what's happening here during this Passover celebration. And they are experiencing all of those emotions. This annual feast always put the high priest and kind of their police on high alert. Every time they would celebrate this festival in Jerusalem, the, the high priest would make certain that they're keeping kind of the uh, kind of keeping the a cool arrangement of what's taking place there because they did not want a riot to stir up. Can you imagine a, a city that usually has 65,000, all, all of a sudden has 330,000 people in it and a riot began? That's going to be mass chaos. So, so, so during this time, the, the priests are trying to make sure that they can kind of keep everything calm and, and collective together to avoid a riot. So it's inside this context that we get a clearer understanding of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. Now, I tell you all that because I want you to keep that context in mind as we now look back at our narrative in Mark chapter 14. And there's really just two things that I wanna share with you regarding a disciple of Jesus. Number one, disciples of Jesus must be marked by a life of extravagant devotion. Disciples of Jesus how many would say, I wanna be a faithful disciple of Jesus? I wanna be a faithful follower of him, okay. So, so when we begin to ask the question, what does that look like? We're gonna see from Mark 14 that a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, their life must be marked by a life of extravagant devotion. Now, what is implied by that? Well, let's unpack the text and see. First of all, this extravagant devotion when we read the text, is not displayed by the Jewish leaders. To answer the question, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? We're gonna answer that, first of all, by really seeing what it doesn't look like. And so when we look at the life of the Jewish leaders and the priests and, and the Pharisees and the teachers of law, we're gonna see that their life is not marked by this idea of extravagant devotion. What do we know about them from the text? Well, we know that they were conspiring against Jesus and they were plotting to kill him. That does not speak of one who is extravagantly devoted to Jesus Christ. If their desire is to kill him and to conspire against him, that is the complete opposite of devotion. Look at what we read again in the text in Mark chapter 14, verse one. It starts off, it says, it was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, they were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and to kill him. This is what they've been doing all along. Since the very beginning, they've, they've been looking for kind of this loophole, this, this opportunity to kind of sneak in and find a way to conspire against Jesus. But now that we've entered this festival season, as Jesus nears the cross, this intensity is in an all new high. They were fed up with Jesus's shenanigans in the temple. 
They were tired of this man whose popularity was beginning to grow among some. And oftentimes they were getting frustrated with with Jesus as he would do miracles on the Sabbath or as he would uh, speak as a man with authority. And they would often compare his authority to that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So they're fed up with this man, Jesus. But they knew they couldn't act during the festival, during this Passover celebration. And why was that? Because they were afraid that a riot would come forth. Look at what they say in verse two, but not during the Passover celebration. They agreed, or the people may riot. So that they kind of made this pact with one another that we are not gonna act during this this Passover celebration because if we do, it might create a riot within this town and that's just going to break loose anything that we try to accomplish. They feared that a large, with such a large crowd and heightened level of emotions that a riot was possible. And they wanted, they wanted to keep the peace if they wanted to remain in good standing with the Roman people. If they, could, if they could keep everything calm and collective, if they could avoid a riot, then that would maintain the relationship that they, Jews, had with the Roman individuals. Now, there's slight irony in all of this because by nature of their timing and trying to avoid uh, taking place during this Passover celebration, Uh, We have the death of Jesus that occurs and the Passover gets reinterpreted in light of Jesus's death and eventually his resurrection. But we see that the, 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 the devotion or the extravagance that is displayed here by the Jews is not that of extravagant devotion. Instead, they display that of hatred and malice. So a disciple of Jesus is one who is supposed to display extravagant devotion to Jesus, but the Jews are far from that. Instead, it is filled with that of hatred and malice. Number two, this extravagant devotion is also not displayed by one of his own, Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples, and his actions were the opposite of that of devotion. Instead, he displayed that of disloyalty. He sneaks away from the crowd, and he goes... And he says to the Jewish people, I'm here to hand over to you Jesus. And they are excited because he is there to make it possible. Judas was willing to betray his own master for some type of material reward. Listen to what the gospel writer says. It says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus They were delighted when they heard why he had come and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas's actions were not loyal at all. Instead, they signify that of of one as a backstabber, one who is disloyal to his master. And he was handing over the one who had been pouring into his life for over three years. Now, what'll be interesting, and and I won't really hit on this today, but when we get to the Last Supper celebration, and when they celebrate that supper, when they share together in that meal, Judas will be present. We don't see it in Mark's gospel, but in John's gospel, there is the washing of the disciples' feet in what is 
such a beautiful example of love and devotion demonstrated by Christ is that he will get down on his knees and he will not just wash the feet of Peter and James and John, those who, yes, for a season will, will maybe fall away, but they come back. He also will get down on his knees and washes the feet of the one who betrays him, Judas. What an example of sacrificial love and devotion and the fact that Jesus is pouring into this man, yet he is going to be disloyal to his master. But what we do see is that this extravagant devotion is displayed in our text by an ordinary woman, not by one of the disciples, not by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but just some ordinary woman who exemplifies and displays an extraordinary act of devotion and loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now I wanna really unpack this for just a moment. And I want you to consider a few things. First of all, the location of this act of devotion where this woman will pour this expensive perfume upon the head of Jesus. This is sandwiched between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are trying to kill and conspire against Jesus And verses 10 and 11, you have this man, Judas, who is supposed to be loyal to his master, but instead he is handing him over to be arrested and eventually crucified. But in the middle of that, in between those two acts and displays of the opposite of that of devotion, we have this extraordinary act of worship and devotion that is displayed by this ordinary woman. Now, let me give you a synopsis of this narrative, and I'll give this to you quickly. First of all, Jesus and a few others, they are dining at the house of Simon the leper. We don't have a lot of evidence who Simon the leper is, but Jesus nonetheless is in his house, um, and this is where they're dining. This is where they're fellowshipping. And while they are there, this woman comes into the house And she breaks open this jar of very expensive perfume and she pours it over the head of Jesus. And those present, the bystanders that are present, they are appalled at her action. Now, when you read the text at face value, I think all of us would probably initially be appalled at what just took place. You're minding your own business. You're enjoying fellowship and a meal with, with others in the household. And then some, some woman comes in and she breaks open a very expensive jar of perfume and she pours it over the head of Jesus. I think if we're all honest, we probably all would have a very similar reaction to what just took place. Like what is going on here? Who is this woman? What is she doing? And why is she pouring this very expensive bottle of perfume that could have been sold, that could have been used for maybe a greater good? And so we see the reaction of those that are present. They accuse her of wasting this expensive perfume. And and how expensive was was it? It was worth 3,000 denarii and, and, and certainly would provide enough wages for one labor for an entire year. So we're talking about a pretty expensive bottle of perfume. This isn't, you know, some ordinary thing that that you pick up at a local store. This thing is is expensive. It has a lot of worth and value to it. And she just broke the whole thing open. It wasn't like she just dumped a little bit and said, here, use the rest to sell and give to the poor. No, she poured the entire bottle of perfume on the head of Jesus. And it was worth enough money to pay one laborer enough wages for an entire year. 
So, so keep that in mind. And now the reaction of the bystanders that day really doesn't shock me, at least at face value, when we consider this extravagant act of the woman. And their response is, you could have sold that perfume. You could have given it to the poor and made a, made a huge kingdom difference. Instead, you wasted it. You, you poured it out upon this man's head. What are you doing? Caring for the poor um, was a customary thing, especially within Judaism, and especially during a special season and celebration such as the Passover. There would be very significant acts of caring for, for the poor or, or, or the underprivileged in order to care for them. They often believed, we even see in Scripture, that when one gave to the poor, that they would receive a nice reward in return. The writer of Proverbs says, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. And so this act of pouring this expensive bottle of perfume up on the head of Jesus and no longer having it to sell and then giving to the poor became this act of confusion by the bystanders. But Jesus, instead, he commended the woman's actions and indicated that they misunderstood what was taking place. When we dig a little bit deeper into this woman's actions, what do we see? We see a few things that I want to point out this morning. First of all, we see an act of total loyalty to Christ, even without having everything figured out. When that woman came in and she broke open that jar of perfume and she poured it upon the head of Jesus. She didn't know what the next few days would look like. She didn't have some intuition that Jesus was going to die and that, that there wouldn't be an opportunity to bury him properly with spices and with oils because of the timing of everything. She didn't have that intuition, but instead she acted in a God-honoring manner without having everything figured out. In her devotion to Christ, she was actually, and this is the beautiful thing, she didn't realize it, but in her devotion to Christ and her willingness to pour this oil upon his, upon his head, she was actually providing for Jesus a proper burial. Because later he wouldn't have that because uh, they weren't allowed to come during the Sabbath. They weren't allowed to come at a certain time, and so they weren't able to make it to provide that proper burial. And then Jesus was raised and the tomb was empty. This woman would be forever remembered and tied to the gospel narrative. So we see an act of total loyalty to Christ, even when she didn't have everything figured out. Number two, we see an act of giving Jesus her all. If you actually translate Mark 14, verse 8, um, literally it provides greater insight into what this woman does. Look at the actual translation. Um, it's a rough translation, but when you translate, or, translate it literally, it simply says, what she had, she did. What she had, she did. She gave her all. This, this is very similar to the statement of the widow in Mark chapter 12. Remember the poor widow who had just two small little coins and she gave everything she has. Look at Mark 12, verse 44, this translation, all things whatsoever she has, this is speaking of the poor widow, the whole of her living. That's what she gave. So we have this, this ordinary woman and we have this poor widow in Mark chapter 12 and both are examples of someone that are giving their all to Jesus. It's an act of total devotion to him. They both held nothing back. They gave their all. She, again, didn't just pour a little bit of the oil. She broke open that whole jar and she, she did all that she had. She poured it all upon the head of Jesus. She also exemplified 
an act of extraordinary sacrifice. Again, the jar was expensive, but none of it was wasted. Later, when Jesus would go to the cross, his blood would be poured out upon that cross and not a single drop of his blood would be wasted. And so even in this act of sacrifice and devotion, we see as she pours it out all up on the head of Jesus, we even get a picture of Jesus's blood being poured out for all of humanity and none of it was wasted. What an incredible act of sacrifice. It sheds light on the good news of Jesus Christ. And we also see that there is an understanding here from this woman of what godly generosity looks like. We see a few things. First of all, generosity is not confined to just one season. Listen to what Jesus says. You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. And so Jesus is just simply saying that, that even though this is a celebration time where you often will, will maybe ramp up your acts of giving to the poor, just so you know um, those that are listening, those bystanders that are in the room, when, when it comes to giving to the poor or being generous, it's not confined to just one time a year. It's not just confined to on the Passover celebration and I can't give to the poor any other time. And so Jesus is making a point here that it's not confined to just one season in life. Number two, generosity is not about having an abundance. We see that from the woman in Mark 12. She had very little. Her two coins did not even make a noise when they were dropped into those boxes or those containers. And here she had this, this, this one jar of perfume. Yes, it was expensive, but she didn't have a lot of it. And she poured it out all upon Jesus's head. And that was an extravagant event of generosity. Number three, the gospel, which reveals the generous love and sacrifice of Jesus is good news, not just for the rich, but also for the poor. And so we see that even in Jesus's display on the cross. So here are some important lessons for us to, to grab onto. First of all, disciples of Jesus must remain loyal to Christ and his ways, even when we don't have it all figured out. Disciples of Jesus must remain loyal to Christ and his ways, even when we don't have it all figured out. I know there's probably some in this room today because we're all human. We like to have everything figured out before we move, before we act, before we respond. We like plans. We like, we like to, to plan out. We like to have kind of a guide in front of us. I mean, think about Abraham for a second. When God came to Abram in Genesis 12 and says, I want you to leave your country, your household, he didn't give him this nice, beautiful map that says, I want you to go here and here. And in 10 years, this is what your life's gonna look like. No, he just says, I want you to be obedient and I want you to go. I've called you, now go. And so disciples of Jesus, we, we have to remain loyal to Christ even when we don't have everything figured out. And the reality is we're not always gonna have everything figured out. But we need to remain tied to and trusting in the fact that God is in control, that he is sovereign, and that if he calls us or he charges us or he leads us, then we need to follow obediently. Number two, disciples of Jesus must be willing to give God our all even if it costs us everything. Cost Jesus his life. He gave us his very best. God gave us his son. So who are we to give God anything less than our very best? God deserves our very best. He expects our very best. Even if it costs us everything, when we give God our very best, I can promise you it is worth it. It is worth it. 
We may not see that return necessarily here on earth, but we will see that return in eternity when there's other people who are gathered around the throne room of God who are impacted because of our willingness to give or go or to serve or pray. And so we need to give God our very best. And number three, disciples of Jesus must demonstrate a godly generosity. So I have this question for us. Is my life, is my life marked by extraordinary devotion to Jesus? Only you can answer that. But I would certainly encourage you in the seasons ahead to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, is my life marked by that of extraordinary devotion or am I disloyal or am I falling short of what God expects? And the second thing is this, and I'll give this to you quickly. Disciples of Jesus center their life around the extraordinary sacrifice of Jesus. We center our life around the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said it himself. I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So disciples of, of Christ, the, what, what really we should center our life around is his sacrifice, his work, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now we see in the text, and I'm not going to read all of it here, but the focus now turns to the Passover meal. And this one would be unique. This one would be different. We read in Mark chapter 14, 12 through 16 that the preparation for this meal has begun. I'm not going to read the text. You can go back and read it later. But all of the, the steps to prepare for this meal took place. And at this meal, Jesus is going to serve as the host. And we know that the Lord's Supper in this particular case is going to function to prepare the disciples for the cross of Jesus Christ. It's going to prepare them for what Jesus is about ready to do when he is arrested and when he is crucified. And so as they gather for this meal, the disciples are present. They are in the upper room. Jesus then exhorts his disciples to, he, he exhorts them to search their hearts. Do you have a heart of betrayal? Look at what he says in the text when he's gathered together with his disciples. He says, in the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. And as they were at the table eating, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. And greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? And so what Jesus is simply doing as they gather for this meal before they even share in the elements, before they break bread and take the cup, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's asking them the question, where is your heart? Do you have a heart of betrayal or do you have a heart of devotion? Because he says to them, one of you here is going to betray me and look at their response. They start searching within themselves. They ask, am I the one? Is it me, Lord? Am I the one that's going to betray you? So what Jesus is encouraging these disciples to do, even before they share together in this meal, is to search their heart. Do you have a heart of betrayal or do you have a heart of devotion to me? Jesus will then reinterpret this meal in light of his pending death. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And then what does he do? He gives it to them. His broken body benefits you and me. And when he broke that bread and he gave it to his disciples, he was indicating that this broken bread, my broken body will benefit you. Now here it is. And he gives it to them. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood shed for you, and he gives them the cup that would benefit them. And he turned this meal into a memorable moment, one that we still celebrate today, 
as we remember what Christ has done at Calvary. And then he says we won't drink the cup of consummation until he drinks it anew with us in the kingdom of God. Look at Mark 14, 25. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom. So then they leave. They go to the Mount of Olives, and he predicts that the disciples will scatter and even deny knowing him. And many of them do. Peter does. You'll see that next week. Peter will deny even knowing Jesus Christ, but he will be restored. There's a few lessons I want to point out to you really here in closing. Number one, sharing together in the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do here in just a moment, serves as a reminder of what Christ did for us on the cross and centering our thoughts and our hearts on what is most important. The reason that we even take of these elements We do it so that we can refocus our attention, our thoughts, and our hearts on what is most important, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. As we share together in these elements, we are reminded of his sacrifice. We are reminded of his devotion to us. We are reminded of his incredible love toward us. We are reminded of the fact that we ourselves, as followers of Jesus Christ, we owe him our devotion, our love, and our sacrifice. We owe him our very best because he, God, gave us his son. So one of the reasons that we share together in these elements is to remind ourselves. That's why, I mean, oftentimes we don't don't have one of the communion tables, but you will see on the front, do this in remembrance of me. We don't don't do this just so we can say, well, I've checked it off. I've taken communion a few times this year. Now I can go back back and live my life how I want to live. And we do it to be reminded of what Christ did on the cross for us. How many of you would say, honestly, I need reminded of things sometimes in life? Well, I mean, we, we have reminder apps. We have, you know, alarms that go off on our phones. We write notes down. We put them in our car. We put them on the refrigerator. You know, we write things on our hand. Wherever we're going to look, we, we remind ourselves of things. Well, the reason we come together around the table, the Lord's Supper, is to remind us, to remind us of what is most important. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, every time we partake, of the elements together, we are reminded that the sacrifice of Jesus is once and for all, and it is all sufficient. No other sacrifice is needed. How many are thankful for that? I mean, no other sacrifice. We don't have to, we don't have to come together every single year. We don't have to slaughter another lamb. We don't have to go through all of these emotions. His sacrifice on the cross, it was all sufficient. It took care. When when he said on the cross, it is finished, He was saying to all of humanity, your sins have been paid for in full. So every time that we share together in these elements, we are not just reminding ourselves of his sacrifice, but we are declaring that his sacrifice is sufficient for all. We don't need another sacrifice. Uh, The writer of Hebrews will talk often about a better covenant, a better sacrifice, a better priest. And that's because we don't have to come together. I'm thankful and, and, and I don't want to splatter blood every, you know, up here on this, you know, beautiful floor. I'm thankful that the cross of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is all sufficient. And number three, the final one is this. 
when we take part in the Lord's Supper, we are tangibly experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection brings us the hope of new life. So when you and I here in just a few moments, when we take of the bread and when we take of the cup, bread is not physically, literally turning into the body of Christ. And this cup is not physically, literally turning into the blood of Jesus Christ. But when we share together in these elements, folks, there's something significant that happens. Certainly it reminds us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but let's not just quickly pass through this moment because I believe when we share together in these elements, God does something in our hearts, does something in our life. He, he reminds us of what is most important, and that is his death and resurrection and how when we submit ourselves to Christ, we have the hope of new life. Worship team, if you want to come, want to end with this quote, and then we're going to share together in communion this morning. One writer said this, remembering in the biblical idiom is not to entertain a pallid idea of a past event in one's mind but to make the event present again so that it controls the will and becomes potent, powerful in our lives for good or ill.